Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. You know, Tyler, one of the great things about ocean and coastal issues is it's a deep subject. There is a lot of territory to cover. There really is. And, uh, you know, occasionally we dip our toes into an obscure corner of the uh, coastal science world to try to understand what these amazing scientists around the world are doing and trying to understand the planet and the ocean and the coastal systems. And uh, we have one of these exploration shows today. We're going to put ourselves into it, I think, an interesting corner and learn about something I've only recently discovered is a thing, and that is paleo-oceanography and paleoclimatology, the study of past climate and ocean conditions as a potential indicator to where we're headed in the future. And uh, it's a very interesting subject. I know nothing about it, so this is going to be you know, a show where we're going to try to learn a few things, Tyler. Absolutely. Well, if you're like me... Uh, when you're trying to understand the future, you look to the past. And yeah. uh, I have often wondered what this planet was like when past climate change events that we learn about, what, what it was we like. We hear about it, yeah. We learn, like, hey, there was a big die-off, or the whole frickin' atmosphere uh, chemistry changed. Yeah. And we don't... I, I, we don't... I mean, I don't know much about that no, myself. Either do I. And uh, but as we confront uh, anthropogenic climate changes, right. we are going to see some, perhaps some ch big changes happening on the planet, and we can actually look to history to maybe understand. Uh, what those might look like. Yeah. Now it's deep history. It's this concept of this is deep way back. This the, is the way back machine. The, the <laughs> I don't. I, mean, I hesitate to even get in the way back machine because, <laughs> boy. But you know, we, we are going to be going back into deep history. But the the science here, I think, is really rich. It's truly about using your imagination. I think, which is what I love about science, is when you really get to imagine. Yeah. The way the world used to be millions, potentially millions, thousands, you know, eons ago. And uh, yeah. it's going to be a fun show, Peter, and we've got a great guest. We do. So joining us today from the University of Oklahoma's College of Earth and Energy is a geologist, I think geochemist perhaps as well, Dr. Joita Butichara. And uh, we are really looking forward to talking to her. She has a fascinating career and is studying paleo-oceanography, paleoclimatology, taking cruises all around the world, taking sediment samples off the seafloor and trying to tell us where we've been and maybe where we're going. So I think it's going to be a really cool show to talk to her. It will be, Peter. We have a ton to cover. But yeah. first, let's have a quick word from our sponsor. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at CoastalNewsToday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at chloe at coastalnewstoday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at coastalnewstoday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. Well, hello, Joita, and thank you very much for taking time to join us on the American Shoreline Podcast. Hi. Well, did the intro, did we torture the subject in the intro, or do you think we were in the ballpark? Tell us... Uh, what we're going to be talking about today. So you did quite well on the intro part. You nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, we can talk about how uh, how do we actually study ancient oceans and ancient climates and what do we learn from that and how is it like helping us uh, to understand future climate changes and overall global changes that might happen um, and overall help towards understanding and uh, the sustainability of the human civilization in future. Well, I tell you, uh, we've been seeing a lot about this in our news feed, on our coastalnewstoday.com news feed. Uh, yeah. It seems that currently there is a lot of uh, energy 
uh, an interest in understanding the ancient oceans for exactly the reasons that we identified, uh, the changing, the anthropogenic climate change that it seems to be upon us. Um, but uh, I am curious in learning more about uh, paleo-oceanography generally uh, and how it has existed for a while. Can you kind of introduce us to uh, what paleo-oceanography is and what its origins are? When did people start to think about this sort of thing? Right, yeah. So um, ocean exploration has been a thing for humankind. Um, just think about the Vikings. <laughs> they were out in the oceans, right? But um, I think in the 1900s with the world wars and everything, people started to understand what actually lies in the seafloor. So um they mapped the seafloor during in the 1900s, and they understood that oh, plate tectonics is happening, and a lot of dynamic changes are happening in our um, ocean basins. So um, that's when people, you know, like geared some some of the interests went into that side, and then um, some of the expeditions that earlier happened, um, scientific expeditions, they kind of. Um, pointed towards the fact that, oh, ocean sediments kind of preserve all our past climate records. So um, that was the beginning of uh, paleoceanographic research. So paleoceanography mm. means, uh, paleo means past, and oceanography means study of the oceans. So it's kind of study of the past oceans or ancient oceans, as you said. Um, yeah, and then uh, once people kind of understood that there is a plethora of information uh, preserved in the chemistry or um, in the biology of um, all these sediments and the rocks that are are there under the um, seafloor. Um, people started taking them out for different kind of analysis in the labs. And then with the uh, advancement of scientific instruments and measurements, uh, the capacities of those kind of uh, measurements, we started to understand that, okay, uh, we can actually talk about temperatures um, of the oceans, maybe hundreds of um, thousands of years ago, and even into millions of years ago. So that's how the whole subject evolved. And anything regarding the oceans are very much linked towards our climate. So paleoceanography and paleoclimatology, they are absolutely blended with each other. Um, and that's how we kind of like started studying these subjects. And right now, information from past climates and past oceans directly help us to understand um, or better predict actually our future climate changes or future oceanographic changes. And that is how this subject is really important, um, especially in the context of uh, present day climate change. Well, uh, it really is. It seems to be blowing up at this point in time. But I, so it's the history. It's the ancient ocean on mm -hmm. planet Earth. Uh, can you how old is how long has the ocean been on planet Earth? I, <laughs> I think of Earth as the blue planet as being the ocean planet. But right. is it fair to say that that the ocean has always been with us? Is, is this the the record of the of our of our planet going back to the, the very beginning? So oceans have been there since, um, so the planet, when it started from the Big Bang and everything, it was very different with lava. You can imagine a lot of lava going on back that, back then. Um, I so can I'm imagine a about, lot of lava. I really yeah, can. Yeah, um, it, it was a molten kind of, not a, not a like nice situation back then. So it's, it's so I'm talking about Imagine you're for, in space. Imagine you're in space looking at yeah. Earth, the, the planet, and it's mm -hmm. just going to be a molten-y blob is that what you're yeah, saying sort of yeah because the earth was uh, very new and um, a lot of uh, molten materials were coming out from inside and i'm talking about a time about four, more than four billions of years so uh, billions so it's a totally different time scale that i'm talking about and then slowly when the earth you know uh, with all the um tectonics happening, the Earth's face kind of uh, started evolving and kind of beca became what it is like today. And we started having oceans. And um, to hit that point about how the oceans were in the past, the oceans were very different in the past. Um, so maybe many people have heard about the word called 
Pangea, um, the yes. land masses that we look at today, they were not the same in the past. It was just a big mass of land and a big mass of ocean back like in the past, several millions of years ago, several hundreds of millions of years ago, actually. And then it started again, the plates beneath us started breaking somewhere it went inside, somewhere it formed. And all these really dynamic changes in the plates um, kind of evolved into the face of the earth that's now so the oceans we are looking at right now um uh, it, it goes back only towards like 65 or something um, at maximum 100 million years ago uh, before that the entire geography of the oceans were very different you know it uh thank you very much for that broad overview of the planetary evolution that we're in and we uh you know, as Howard said, that the interest in climate change obviously is a is a pitch high project, uh, topic these days. COP twenty six is coming up in Scotland, in Glasgow, at the International Meeting of World Leaders. The IPCC report has come out this year, the update number six. A lot of concern about this currently in the United States and around the world. Um, it must be an exciting career field to be in. What steered you? Uh, into this notion of paleoclimatology or paleooceanography, how did how did your career turn into this this particular region of research? Yeah, so um, as an undergraduate geology student, like um, when I was thinking of what my next step would be in my career. Um, uh, a couple of classes or courses that I took as an undergraduate student was about how um, isotopes um, or different kind of elements, uh, you know, like basically chemistry of sediments and rocks, how they are used um, to directly answer questions about um, past climate changes and temperature changes. So as for example, um, our um, oxygen that we breathe, uh, it has different kind of isotopes and two of those isotopes are directly utilized to um, to quantify the amount of like the temperatures that were back in the past. So using that value of the oxygen isotope, we can tell if it was 20 degrees C or 50 degrees C uh, Celsius I'm talking about. So um, that utility of uh, chemistry in understanding past climate was kind of very fascinating as an undergraduate student hmm. in geology. And then I decided, oh, I really want to look into this subject and uh, pursue higher, you know, higher studies and further research. And that's how I got into my PhD program in, in Rice University. Yeah, I see. So when you when you were I, I have to ask about this if when you were talking to your parents or your good friends and they said, so what are you going to be when you grow up or what are you going to study? Uh, what was the answer to that question early in your life? Because most people, I would think, would not even know what the topic paleooceanography is. What did you say early in your professional life, say at your undergraduate year level? What would, <laughs> how you when your friends yeah. at the bar, you know, what are you studying? Well, I'll be, what did you say? Yeah, it was uh, definitely a very unique and different experience from most of my other engineer and doctor friends, <laughs> definitely, uh, because uh, it's not that common for everybody to talk about geology and um, millions years climate change of stuff like that. So I was really fascinated into geology because um, uh, I have he I, he I heard about stories from a from a geologist family member. So I kind of like knew what people were doing in the field a little bit, not exactly, but then um, I always wanted to pursue some research in, uh, in you know, past climate related stuff. So mm. I talked about that directly to my parents and my uh, peers. And uh, it was fun in the beginning. My parents were very supportive of uh, whatever career choice I was taking. So that was not a problem at all. But um, definitely it is a, re a relatively unique experience compared to other friends who were uh, engineers and doctors, you know? Yes, yes, more than yeah. more common. So, we, okay, so I, what I, I think what we have to do is a little basic. I think Tyler was very interested in this particular topic here. It's about how can you tell what the ocean was like or the climate was like millions and millions of years right. ago yeah. by looking at a sediment core? Well, I, but I actually want to go out go even beyond a sediment core because, I, you know, to approach the problem of the ancient ocean, uh, you're, you're, you have a modern ocean. 
That is, you know, it's like that scene in Apollo 13. They dump all the shit on the table and it says, we got to make this fit into this. You got a modern ocean. You have a modern planet. You're trying to detect what the ancient thing was like. How do you approach that? How, how, how do paleo-oceanographers approach that? Yeah, so I think very basic studies um, originated with a lot of uh, paleontologists in the beginning. So paleontologists are people who study fossil record. So fossil record is another um, perspective of these kind of past ocean and past climate studies because, um, you know, if uh, you might look at a bivalve or a gastropod which lives in the uh, Atlantic coast and a very different kind of species which lives in the Pacific coast right now. So you know these kind of different diversity of um, uh, biotic species, hap- like it occurs right now in the present day. So even in the past, if you know that this particular kind of fossil oh, it looks like it lives only near the shores. And then there could be another fossil, which seems to be uh, the organism dwell, like lived much below in the deep oceans. So you could basically identify on the basis of these kind of different fossil records, like where we are in the past. So fossil records had been always one of the biggest tools in um, deciphering past uh, environments, I would say. So paleo-environmental reconstruction is another word which is kind of blended in all these paleoceanographic oh. and paleoclimate studies. So you might need to know which environment we are talking about. Is it on the land? Is it deep in the sea? Or is it on a lake or something like that? So um, that's one of the basic tools that people use. And then some of the more um, other tools are in the uh, chemistry of the sediments. So isotopes are one of the biggest um, you know, uh, methods of understanding um, these kind of environments and past climates. So as I said, the example of oxygen isotope, there are several other isotope systems uh, from the elements. It could be oxygen, it could be hydrogen, carbon, and many, many, many other isotope systems, which tell us different um, parameters of, um, you know, past oceans and past climate. So that's another thing. And then overall, looking at the rocks, so the rocks which get deposited in the oceans are very different than the ones which are formed in the land by oh. a river or by a air like in the desert so these rocks are very different so those these three types of tools are they come hand in hand and they are all used by geologists or geoscientists to understand past uh, conditions yeah well i got to say that is that is fantastic and is there any utility to uh the anything beyond the sediment the 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 cores is there any way to study are there are there other tools beyond core samples that are used um to study the ancient ocean yes i think uh with modern technologies and you know development in numerical modeling people um so uh, science from the cores and the sediment samples and science from the um you know, various kinds of numerical modeling, they go, uh, they are kind of complementary to each other. So people have used some of the data from our samples to create some models. And these models are directly utilized in understanding the past as well. And then more models need more data and more data needs more models. So they kind of like go hand in hand. And numerical modeling is another approach that some scientists take. Um, They, uh, they run different kind of global circulation models or various kinds of uh, modeling techniques, which kind of talk about how the oceans, um, the ocean currents happen to be in the past or what kind of, you know, atmospheric wind circulation happened in the past. So that's another uh, perspective of paleoclimate science. I see. Help us. Uh, so in the in the community of researchers around the world uh, who are interested in and publishing in and researching this particular topic area where are you in the subject pantheon uh, the spectrum of scientific interests there's the modelers of course and the field scientists but if you could introduce us to the community of researchers and put yourself in the context tell us where you are in that map us out a little bit of where you are yeah so um i think there are three types i would say one um is like people who uh, directly work with the sample data so you go out in the field or in some way you get the samples of the sediments of the rocks okay or whatever you're working with and then work in the lab to um to you know produce the actual data and then publish the work um 
Then there's the other end of the spectrum uh, who mostly use these kind of data or um, do a lot of like these kind of data they use and feed into different kind of models and they use those models to you know produce their results. Okay. And then there are people in the middle who kind of like use both data uh, from sediment samples as well as use models. So I. I am still on the first end of the spectrum, which is like the sediment sample data. So I have always been a lab rat, basically. So I went out in the field or um, I went into these different uh, ocean drilling expeditions. So I have got uh, real samples in hand, thousands and thousands of samples. I um, I kind of like uh, measured all the isotopes and other different kind of parameters that I uh, used for my different studies in the lab and then produced the data and analyzed the data and whatever implications we got from those data we published in the paper, like uh, journal see. articles. So I'm still on the lab rat side. You're down at, yeah, well, that's the great side to be. Uh, and, and, <laughs> I, I and actual. I think that's the actual geology. If Charles Barkley, theoretical. You're, if Charles Barkley were sitting here, he'd be very thrilled yeah, that you're hands on. Hands on. Uh, <laughs> anti-analytics, not anti. I'm not trying to color you, but uh, yeah, I, I appreciate that you're you're actually looking at the samples themselves in the field and in the lab. So tell us about. Uh, and we're gonna. Uh, there's a couple things I want to explore. First, I want to know a little bit about uh, where do you get cores? How are they taken? Uh, teach us something mm -hmm. about that. And then I want to dive into after we're done with that a little bit of how the record in the. Uh, sediment cores uh, can be deciphered to tell you about climate. But teach us about cores. Where do you go? How big's the ship? How long do you go mm -hmm. out to sea? How deep is the water? What does a core look like? Yeah, so um, you can take a sediment core from any, you know, uh, rock record that you might be interested in. But uh, for my research, I have always used deep ocean sediment records. So for that, I had participated in um, the International Ocean Discovery uh, Program scientific expeditions. So the um, U.S. National Science Foundation has a big ship associated with the IODP or the International Ocean Discovery Program. So it's a drill ship. Um, it's called Joides Resolution. And um, so basically uh, the Joides Resolution ship goes out on two month uh, kind of uh, on an average, two-month-long expeditions out into the oceans, um, everywhere on Earth, Pacific, Atlantic, Indian, uh, Southern, um, everywhere, and uh, scientists. So there are there are expeditions with particular uh, mo motivations or you know proposals that people write, and if you feel that your research is aligned with that particular expedition's um, uh, goals, then you apply to sail as a scientist. Okay, um, on the join the crew. And, All right. We'll skip that yeah. part. That's the administrative getting on board part. But when um, when you're at sea, um, mm -hmm. well, I'm very interested in learning about the vessel herself. Okay, yeah. All right. Like, what's it like on board? Yeah, how big? How are tell us about the ship. Where does it sail yeah, from? Yeah, it's is so the Joides is a. I have to check the. Give me a second. It's probably 150 meters, but yeah. I have to check the length. I don't remember, okay. but it's pretty big. It's a drilling vessel. It's pretty big, um, and it has a drill rig in the middle, um, and then uh, it can accommodate. So typically, there are about one twenty people, including thirty scientists, thirty technicians, and sixty other people um, okay. who take care of the drilling and food and everything. And then you go out in the middle of the ocean. The waters could be as deep as i the one i have sailed on um was about 4500 meters deep waters so we drilled wow. into that deep waters in tasman sea but um the joides resolution has drilled even into like i think 7000 or more than that so in water depths um, of 7000 so so mm -hmm. let me ask you if you yeah. could explain i mean it, it, for those who follow along in climate science, we've all heard about uh, ice cores and why ice cores are drilled and that they trap air bubbles, which can then be extracted and analyzed to actually measure the CO2 content or atmospheric composition through a geologic core in the ice. Familiar with that one. And then there's, as you said, you can take cores on land. So I have it. Here's what is it about an ocean core that makes it 
better or the area you want to focus on? And what is it about deep ocean cores? Why are those two things important in selecting the data sets that you're going after? Yeah, that's an excellent question, actually. So um, the, the sediment cores, so basically, if you look at the sediment cores, you are looking at um, multiple layers of sediments, just which are you know buried through time, and nobody's there to you know disrupt those sediments usually. But in the land, if you go, you know, you might deposit some sediments beside a river, but then because of a sudden flood or something that gets totally eroded away, and you lose part of the record of from the geologic time scale. But in the oceans, generally, it's a very quiescent place to deposit all these sediments. So if you go in and drill a hole and take out the sediment record, you will, you might expect to get a complete record of undisturbed sediments through time, which I is see. very interesting and uh, actually important because you don't need to worry about losing time or you might not worry about something getting eroded because of a flood or something. So deep oceans are very useful in that sense. Um, why not shallow oceans? Because again, if there is a flood, the river certainly like grows, you know, uh, will probably dump a lot of material into the shallow part of the ocean and your whole sediment record might be a little bit biased and you might have more complexities. But in the deep oceans, it's just a pure quiescent place to deposit um, uh, the sediments. And these sediments are mostly the remains of various organisms which have shells. So again, um, that gives you a a beautiful scope to through uh, to see through time. So, uh, can, are there samples? Are there core samples that have been taken that that go back the whole one hundred million year history, geologic history of the ocean? Yes, there are many, many, many places um, in the oceans where, uh, through Joydis resolution, wow. and, yeah, we have. Uh, entire history of the ocean um, that have yeah about okay. 100 million that's a so. great question Tara. go ahead well my question is how long is that yeah core? that's what i want to know how big is it yeah so generally that actually depends on what kind of place you're drilling so you know um of course a core is generally about um, nine and a half meter long but in a place where the sedimentation rate is high then you know you have to calculate that i cannot say anything like that because uh, it totally depends on the place right. you are The deposition drilling. rate and yes. exactly the type of material that is falling exactly. down and how so, dense it is and how mm -hmm. packed it is. But mm -hmm. I still, like, if we wanted to look back at 100 million years ago on a core from the Tasman Sea, uh, how long would that, how far okay. deep into the earth do you have to go in the sediment It could be core? about seven kilometers or something. Wow. Okay. That far down. Just a ballpark estimate. Okay. And there are cores that are seven kilometers in length? Uh, yes. Uh, no, the core cannot be that long. Definitely. Okay. So when the core comes out, the engineers and the technicians on board uh, on the ship, they cut them into nine and a half. So I each see. core, sorry, the, the core comes out as a nine and a half uh, interval thing. Okay. Um, but then that is still the unwieldy. That's yeah, thirty-six feet. But then long. the nine and a half is cut into sections, which are one and a half meters long. So scientists deal with one and a half meter long sections of okay. each core. So yeah. All right. So you so we understand a little bit why deep ocean, the quiescent area, Tyler, where mm -hmm. where the sediments are going to pile up and not be disturbed. That, that makes or a lot of sense. I get that. Yeah. It's better than anything on the land. Better even than, when even when they dive down there. Yeah, uh, like you know, in those Ballard National Geographic Alvin yeah. sub videos. Yeah, it looks there. You can Pretty see. Peaceful. First of all, you can see the stuff falling. Yeah, in the lights, There's which a, is cool. The detritus coming down. Yeah, raining down upon the seafloor. And the other thing is, you can just see that you can see the deposition on the on the yeah. bottom, and just yeah. how. Yeah. Man, I just it just intuitively I could see how that would make sense that if you could t make a sample and go down deep yeah. you could really you could see what was going on yeah all right so so the when you have a core and you're saying a lot of the material in the core you're saying is actually uh micro is photosynthetic whatever it's 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 marine phytoplankton uh animals it's critters well, bivalves it's, you i know, guess we've very got... small i mean yeah is it so tell us what yeah tell us the tell us what the composition of these cores yeah. are made out of and yeah let's go with that what is it what is it it's mud it would look like mud yeah. i would assume 
yeah so when you start having the core the the shallowest ones will look like mud because you know they are loose sediments but then deep inside if you keep on drilling uh, the mud will convert into solid rock because ah. they had been buried for millions of years and they okay. have been lithified. So, you know, it, it there is a sharp, not not a sharp, like a very prominent transition from mud-like loose sediments into something more lithified and then finally very hard, like solid rocks. So, uh, so you see me, the whole I, transition. I, I want to, can you say the word again? Is it lignified? What is the? Lithified. Oh, lithified. So, okay. Like, okay. Yes. Thank you. Lithification means formation of a rock. It's a yeah. Okay, so there's sedimentary compressed rocks, high pressure sediments yes. turn into. Okay, keep going. I apologize. Yeah. Um, no. Yeah. And then uh, overall composition wise, what happens is our oceans are filled with um, like millions and billions of microorganisms, and these microorganisms are um, one of the most common uh, ones are called foraminifers. Yes. So what are these foraminifers? These are oftentimes they are uh, phytoplanktons. They are single-celled organisms, but they have a beautiful calcium carbonate uh, shell, just like a bivalve or a gastropod. Um, they have a little tiny shell around their soft part, but you can't see them in eyes most of the with your bare eyes most of the times. They are microorganisms, so that means in micron scale. Um, but they are filled in these oceans. There are thousands and thousands. So when they die, their cell dies, but the shell, the calcium carbonate, it's an inorganic matter. So it doesn't die. So it falls, the remain just falls through the water column and touches the seafloor. And then, you know, like with time, it just it just forms the sediments. It forms the bulk of our sediments in okay. many, many areas under the oceans. Fascinating. And these shells are used for all our analysis later on. Okay. So something about the composition, the chemistry of the water or the temperature of the water is going to be revealed in these microscopic sediment samples. These, these calcium carbonate shells are going to record this fact is what you're saying. And I don't understand how that works. What is it about a, a calcium carbonate shell that would indicate one way or the other the temperature or chemical yeah. composition of the water. Yeah, I yeah, uh, it's a very good question. So just imagine right now in the ocean, there is this tiny foraminifer that's living and it has its calcium carbonate shell, right? But how is it building the shell? The calcium carbonate just doesn't, you know, like happen there. It just takes the calcium and carbonate ions from the water that's existing in the waters, ocean waters, ambient waters, and it forms its shell. So when it forms the shell, the calcium and the calcium carbonate, whatever the chemistry or the isotopic composition or any other, you know, like various other parameters in the calcium carbonate composition, it directly, rec it's recorded from the ambient oceanic chemistry. I see. So, it is dependent on the temperature of the ocean waters. It is dependent on the salinity of the ocean waters. It is dependent on many other physical and chemical conditions of the oceans at that point of time when the shell is being generated by the organism. Okay. So now if the organism dies, suppose today, it records today's temperature and other chemical conditions and physical conditions. But then after 100 years, the shell that is living there, it will record the conditions that is pertinent to the 100, like, in a hundred years uh, in the future. So through time, if you just extract those shells, you will actually look at the temperatures and other conditions of the oceans uh, back in time. So suppose a shell which was there a million years ago, or maybe a couple million years ago, will, will have a very different composition than what it is now. And then it will be a very different composition than what it was in like 50 million years ago. So basically it's recording all those ambient chemistry of the ocean waters when it is being generated by the organism. I would personally benefit at this moment <laughs> yes. from a broad overview of the history of the ocean. Oh, come on. No, <laughs> no, no. No, <laughs> like, no, no. no. What? Oh, you mean the chemical transitions between different phases of the ocean? I would b benefit from a broad history of the major eras of the history of the ocean at this moment in time. Okay. 
Because I feel as though this, <laughs> because I feel as I though know. what's happening is that at various times in uh, Earth history, in the history of the ocean, yeah, it's different. The uh, uh, organisms that are populating it, be they uh, plants or animals, and as the thing evolves more and more, right, the chemistry is shifting, and those a lot of those organisms are what's falling down over that history and period of time. However, at some point in time, there isn't life and there isn't organic matter falling down. There was a time when um, obviously life was not there on Earth and uh, all we had was a little bit of cyanobacteria, uh, which dwelled, you know, um, in the intersection of land and oceans. And we we have these, uh, I don't know if you have heard about the Shark Bay in Australia, they have these beautiful stromatolites so these are microorganisms that form a very different kind of rocks. There was no other types of life forms living uh, you know, on Earth back then. And I'm talking about multiple billion years ago. Right. And then um, sometime around um, several hundred million years ago, there was a, it's called Cambrian explosion in, in geology. So suddenly there was a bunch of ox oxygen in the atmosphere. Um, so life was very... Um, so it, it, it kind of helped in evolution of life forms. And there is um, this explosive evolution of various different types of life forms on Earth. And then we start, you know, like enriching our biodiversity and going towards what we are right now in terms of biodiversity. So um, back, back in the billion years history of, uh, of the Earth, there was not many life forms. So we cannot use these kind of sediment records I'm talk I was talking about earlier for going deep down into billion years climate, climate history. Um, it's more pertinent for the million years time scale. So um, there were times in the ocean when ocean comp like water composition um, types of ions or chemicals that are present, they were totally different back then. And then with evolution of life, it totally changed our um, oceanic uh, chemistry as well. So yes, uh, your question is right, that the oceans were not always having life forms as well done, today. <laughs> yeah. I think that, yeah, okay, that was the answer to that question. Well, I, yeah. I see, right. I'm just trying to frame this up, because yeah. when we're studying these, these organisms, we're talking about a, a more recent uh, period of time, uh, on, on geologic time here. Right. In it's, the millions of years as yeah, opposed to the billions. The billions. Of years, of or the, years. We're not really going right. 100 million years either. We're in the few millions uh, of years. How, how, what is your time period of interest? Yeah. So I am very much interested in um, about 65 to 50 million years. And I will say why, because um, there are two big major events that happened uh, in this uh, period of time that are um, anomalous global warming events. So, you know, uh, there were certain intervals between about 65 or 70 to about 40 million years in the history of Earth um, that there were major, major global warming events happening. A lot of CO2 carbon dioxide gas release, but all of these um, events were naturally uh, like occurring because of certain natural triggers right um and they are um, they kind of like provide us analogs of global warming scenarios so i'm interested in this interval especially because it is marked by multiple greenhouse gas um you know explosions sort of and global warming events and these are relevant because our future is also headed towards a little bit of global warming as well so we are concerned because of the anthropogenic uh, warming that's happening right now. And uh, these intervals from the past kind of provide us analogs to look into what was the different global changes that were triggered because of global warming back in the past. Fascinating. Yeah. So that's what we want to actually get to here. We're, we're going to, uh, you know, it sounds like that the temperature and chemical composition of the sea is reflected in the sedimentary core record as they're recorded in these foraminiferous foraminiferous uh, shells. Uh, so when you look back at this period, 50 to 65 million years, right, is what I think mm -hmm. we're talking about. Um, you say there's multiple evidence of multiple climate change events. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. What does the what what happens when when this occurs? What can you tell from that period that might suggest uh, how the uh, 
planet is going to respond this time? Yes. Um, so uh, I'm talking of one one example. I could say it's um, the age of that event is about 56 million years ago. And back then, um, the carbon dioxide um, concentration in our atmosphere was about five times that than what we are facing right now. So it, you know, it serves as that major wow. uh, extreme an- analog, as you might see in the IPCC report reports there are different pathways uh, of future you know future climate change and if you consider the extreme one it could lead us back to the past so um, during this interval um, the oceans were extremely acidic so all these coral reefs out there or different kind of carbonate shell forming organisms that i'm talking about these could bleach these could totally uh, bleach and uh, that happened in the past um, because the oceans became so acidic with the carbon dioxide, extreme carbon dioxide composition uh, concentrations that these organisms couldn't survive. So there were certain extinction events also associated with huh. um, these global warming um, intervals. Okay, let me and see then, if I let me see if I follow that. I think I understood mm-hmm. what you just said, which is, yeah, first of all, that 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 the concentration of CO two in the atmosphere was five times greater. Um, yes. We're somewhere around 415 to 420 parts per million CO2. So we're talking about 2,000 yes. plus. Yes. Um, yes. CO2 dissolves in seawater, produces carbonic acid, so that the ocean is acidic. So are you saying that in those conditions, you see a disappearance of coral or a disappearance of carbonate-shelled organisms? You wouldn't find them during that period in the sediment. Is that kind of what you're suggesting? Not all of them would die, but there would be a a big proportion of these kind of carbonate shell bearing organisms which would die and become extinct. Um, Not everybody dies because there are certain organisms which find different paths of sustaining um, during these kind of, you know, stressful events, uh, climate events. But there will be a good proportion of organisms which will not be able to sustain and will probably go extinct. That has happened in the past. And today, if you look at the uh, coral, bleaching is one of the big news that comes up every day. So it's relevant because we are putting so much CO2 into our atmosphere that the oceans are absorbing a lot of it becoming acidic and then the corals can't survive in these acidic uh, environments so that's pertinent to what happened in the past as well well it's it's crazy and i i tell you uh this there's a lot to cover here and i just i'm looking at a map of earth 50 million years ago ladies and gentlemen and <laughs> I'm gonna Google it it's out. really cool um but what's really cool about this period of time and joyita what i'd like you to talk a little bit about is that the earth is recognizable where it's not the molten ball. It's not the Pangea period. There is clearly North and South America. There's Africa. Europe is uh, pretty disjointed. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's flooded in lo- lots of parts. Uh, uh, Australia is there. Uh, the continents have been created. So, um, and, and the other thing that I was looking at uh, is that the the life on earth is not just single celled organisms, which I think is important to note is that there during this period of time, ladies and gentlemen, I am not, uh, I've, it's been a long time since I studied my dinosaurs (laughs) and my ancient, uh, my ancient life. But I see a a fossil here that looks just like a bird. I see a big fossil here, uh, of a, I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce this, uh, Mm -hmm. ancient critter, but there's a lot, but it's a mammal. No, there's a, well, they're reptiles, but there's a lot of dinosaurs. No, there are mammals here. Okay. Like, like, like us, our ancestors, um, are around, um, which makes, which makes the study of this period of time a little bit more, uh, (laughs) recent, even though it's 50 million years ago, this does feel yeah. Um, well, there's no humans yet. There's no hom- hominids at this point in the, in world right. in history. There's there are animals. There are there might be mammals too. Ba- basically, beginning of mammals. But so it's a long time. Yeah. <laughs> it's so a it, long. It actually, it's after dinosaur dinosaurs got extinct. Oh, in this period. That's yeah. sixty five million, right? Dinosaurs died. Yeah, <laughs> at sixty five. Okay. How about yeah. that? Okay. So we're post. All right. So, but there are a lot of mammals. So yeah. what? So what can you say about? Oh, here's one conclusion that you've given us so far. When CO two levels in the atmosphere go up, 
the level of ocean acidification goes up because CO2 dissolves into seawater and it forms an acid, a carbonic acid. Um, and what can you tell us about uh, about the levels that were there? And, and are there other, obviously you said it doesn't kill everything. There are organisms that can adapt to those conditions. Um, exactly. Can you teach us a little bit about what was in the water at that point or what the acid levels would have been? Um. Yeah, so the pH was um, probably much lesser than today. So, you know, the pH scale is the one which is used to measure acidity. So it could be less than seven today. It's a little higher than seven, but it was probably a little lesser than seven. Okay. Um, but then the problem with the, uh, the overall warming and CO2 is not just the CO2, but also, you know, the, the cascading effects of uh, increasing... Um, temperature. So CO2 is a greenhouse gas. It increases, it not only increases the ocean acidity, but also it increases our temperature because um, it kind of like traps a lot of solar warmth. The, the warmth that comes from the sun gets trapped with increasing CO2 concentrations in our atmosphere. So the temperatures on our planet just begins to rise and rise. So increasing temperature is one of the biggest um, impacts of these kind of uh, high CO2 level uh, intervals from the past, not only the ocean acidification. That's another impact, but increasing temperatures is also very relevant and that's what is happening. And then another point I would like to say is about the um, uncertainty in various kind of climate events. Like right now, you might hear that there is an increasing frequency of California wildfires and sometimes increasing frequency of the hurricanes on the East Coast. So these kind of um, unpredictable predictable behavior of the, um, you know, atmospheric circulation and wind patterns and um, rain and these kind of sort of things are also very, um, very much the impact of um, climate change and global warming. So um, you see not not only just ocean acidification, but directly increasing temperatures and uh, uncertainties in weather wow. patterns and these kind of things and sea level rise. Another thing. So no, uh, <clears throat> no hesitation in that statement, Tyler. None at all, and I like it. I do too. Everything just, is connected. Uh, so, Doctor Bhutacharya. Bhutacharya. Yes. Uh, uh, how much were you paid to just say that? I'm just kidding. <laughs> This is one. Of the, not much. No, yes, not. That's sad. That's not, sad much. not much. But I think this is one of the things and the reason we like talking to scientists and we like to delve into the details is because people have this sense of, you know, these people don't really know what this is. How do they how could they tell from a core? Well, we're trying to go through that discussion yeah. and. And, and the work that you do is, is grounded in what, you know, we all understand is the scientific method and why it's so uh, reliable as a way to understand the situation that we are headed into. So thank you for doing this work, you and all the other, you know. Well, let me get in on this yeah. and, and say that yeah. what I really appreciate about this science is that it, it is, first of all, it is complex. The linking from... Uh, you know, a core sample to the fossil record, yeah, to isotope under chemistry, uh, understanding the broader uh, disciplines of science of plate tectonics and how the planet is changing over time, right? The imagination that is required here, and yeah, if you want to be, yeah. if you want to define some little exception or anything but you know you could do it because there's a there are you have to think your way you have to connect the dots yeah but that's what's so beautiful about it yeah you know it's great. such a it's such a not imagination uh, the sense of making it up but in order to understand the data and how you can put the picture together how it explain how it's explainable in the same way that uh the batter has to imagine where the ball will be to hit it huh that you know it's you have two eyes and you're working three dimensions it yeah, is yeah, yeah. okay it's a I'm i think I, I think that when we're in pondering uh the ancient world at particularly what's what's so incredible is all of the how all of these sciences are coming together now with the computer programming piece yeah which modeling. i think is like this i mean i would have never thought to include that in that list of techniques yeah 
uh, droida that right. you said it, earlier. You but can model the ink. It, it does seem like you can. You could, yeah, you could take all the, the data and put it together. Yeah. Put it all in the same pot and code it, code it up. Right. Yes. Yes. Um, so, uh, Juita, can you tell us now? You've been you've been working on this. It sounds like a fascinating career and really interesting work. Um, uh, are you optimistic about our future, or how do you personally feel about what you are learning? How has it impacted your understanding of what's happening around you uh, to have this depth of information available? Yeah, that's a very difficult question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Um, so I think um, the future is, I guess, like it depends on a lot of factors, um, how fast we start acting and kind of um, appreciating um, what geology teaches us. Um, so we know that back in the past, there were different intervals which were really, really warm and probably will, the planet will not warm that much right now you know we don't need to be scared about five times but what happens is the the major changes in um, different kinds of uh, earth systems so major changes as i said in temperature oceans and weather patterns very importantly so all these things kind of affect human sustainability which is important because back in the past the events i was talking about hominids were not there we didn't have a civilization and we didn't have to think about you know like um, these external things um, so right now all these factors will be impacting our lives daily lives probably um, changing in agricultural patterns um, probably uh, some other microbial born disease will come up uh, because of climate change so I'm a little, you know, overall a little bit worried about that. But that being said, I do think that certain like actions and policies could greatly help mankind because we don't need to worry about the five times rise right now, but we should worry about the doubling of CO2, um, the two times. So, but with proper actions and policy revisions and, you know, like overall a, a combined effort from everyone will help us um, mitigate these changes. We can never stop the changes because we have changed a lot, um, the entire system of the earth, but we can mitigate a lot of the effects uh, later on. It's kind of a bummer. I agree. I mean, it is. We're, we're heading into, I mean, I'm just thinking you're probably the first geologist who I think we've spoken with who is so f focused on the future you know, uh, yeah, here we are. A, yeah, that's true. Here we are talking yeah. about yeah. Uh, the ancient ocean. The term mm -hmm. is paleo-oceanography. Yeah. And you you are genuinely, every effort of your work is is really focused on helping us understand what we're in, coming into as a people, as a human. I like that. That's interesting for a geologist. Uh, did you anticipate yeah. having that? did you have you always had that purpose in your in your work so when i started i don't think so but then with time and you know like uh, with all these relevant changes and all the news that are coming up every now and then i think like it's very Im important to utilize my science in something which is important for uh, you know sustainability of our civilization overall so that is one of the biggest reasons why i think Paleoceanography and paleoclimate is not just about the past, but it's it's the key to the future, I would say. And many scientists do say that uh, the past is the key to the future. So that is one of the big reasons. And it's not like I started doing geology just to do that, but I kind of like grew that understanding and appreciation of how our past climate archives are very important in helping us direct our future um, and understand our future changes. So, yeah. I kind of like developed when I was mostly doing my PhD, yeah, mm -hmm. as a graduate student. Stepping From, up to the plate. Yes, indeed. And at Rice University, which is one of the fine, one of the finest institutions in America, certainly one of the top research institutions in Texas, uh, very, very well known. Uh, I happen to have gone to a uh, to A and M, and Tyler and I are here in Austin, Texas, home of the uh, Texas Longhorns, of course, and you're up in Norman. Uh, who are the mortal enemy exists, the, uh, the, the, the Sooners of Oklahoma, uh, who continue to kick ass down in Texas here. Anyway, uh, are you a football fan? 
so I don't watch American football. <laughs> <laughs> what do you watch? Okay, what sports wait. do you watch? Well, What's your favorite sport? A, I'm an Indian, so I I come from India, so I more like cricket, you know, or, or really? at the max I can do soccer. <laughs> okay. What's, what cricket team is your cricket team that you like to follow? Well, like uh, I support my team India. <laughs> okay. Okay. The national team. Of course, they play yeah. internationally. Yeah. Yes. Uh, it's a game, I tell you, I have, I, I can't even figure out the score sheet. I don't understand all the numbers. I've never tried. I really would like to take, I need to take a class or watch some YouTube videos. It's a hugely about popular sport. It's and gigantic all over yeah. the world. India, Pakistan. It's mostly colonial, though. I it it is. Yeah. 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 Who's the world champion but, right now? Is it wow. Pakistan? Yeah, I that's an, I, I, I don't follow that much. I don't okay. know. <laughs> Sorry. No, right, I'm not that much into sports. No, back, I do okay. like to watch cricket once a while, but okay. yeah. <laughs> the, the clothes are nice, you know? It's the white pants, the white shoes. Anyway. That's just for the the bigger series thing, but to, nowadays we just focus on the one one day and, you know, like T20 matches, which are just two hours, so they do have colors on their jerseys. Ah, very interesting. So, Giala, anyway, so I, so I think that is an interesting observation because uh, about the, that you're, you're in a, a profession in a science that is completely retrospective, but doing it for the purpose of, of uh, a future analysis, which makes mm -hmm. a great deal of sense. Um, are, what do you think it would take to help people better understand that uh, greenhouse gases, including CO2, actually do alter the chemistry of the atmosphere and have this impact that we are measuring? Scientists in all disciplines can measure uh, whether you're a biologist tracking, you know, uh, the big growing season or where particular animals are moving and migrating, you can tell climate change is real to everything that, like you're doing in geology. Um, do you have any suggestion on how we can try to get this point across to the people who are yeah. struggling with it? Yeah, I think um, geology, geochemistry, I it shouldn't be treated as an advanced subject. It should be I, in my opinion, in my very personal opinion, I think students from middle school, high school should be able to take geology and geochemistry as their courses because that's where most of the awareness will be rooted into, you know, in our school students. And then these people, when they grow up, they can grow up with the sense of appreciation of what our whole climate history, geologic history has to tell us because it's hard to teach uh, just all of a sudden to a or to an old man because you know like old human being because i f i believe like school kids need to learn um these kind of uh, concepts a little bit of these introductory concepts about how climate change happened how it is relevant towards our future so um, incorporating in our k-12 entire like you know those systems uh, these kind of little bit of introductory concepts would definitely benefit our future generations overall throughout yeah well, we certainly have to get past the <clears throat> the discussion that the Earth is six thousand years old, which is a stumbling block for many uh, people. But um, I think you're right. I think the concepts are well, are, and you so know they're accessible. You can talk to people about stratification. I couldn't I couldn't agree with uh, what Jared is saying more. Yeah, which is that an important part of uh, adapt adaptation and our social adaptation to think about our our human existence on the planet in a better way is to incorporate uh, our understanding of natural sciences. Hmm. And geology is ultimately the rock we're on. You know, it's Earth. And it's how yeah. Earth is... It's the history of, it's of a good this place planet. To start, yeah, and it is. It's it's yeah. it's Earth centric, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, although I'm sure that you can study the geo the, the geology of any other planetary body. You can, but yeah. um, studying the geology of this particular planetary body that we are on is of uh, interest to us as a society to have people know this. And it and I would include in that uh, the other natural sciences and Earth sciences, but. Um, no doubt that we have made it uh, 
a little bit more inaccessible than it should be. Well, yeah. it, I mean, it was intimidating to kind of, you know, we talked for a couple of weeks before the show about doing this show and we were trying to review some of the materials and it, and it is very technical and we were, you know, Googling a lot of words and trying to go back. Oh, yeah, what, okay, trying to remember from organic chemistry isotopes and how they, <laughs> what's an isotope? What's the atomic number? That's different from the atomic weight. Now, what are we talking about? Oh, yeah, it's the neutrons, but they're not called neutrons anymore. You know, there's all that. But it, it is a little difficult to, to approach, but the, the basic concepts that were real clear, um, mm -hmm. the fact that the deposition of material into layers on the seafloor or on the land traces the history and it can be read with the right parameters and the right, uh, with, the, with the right scientific instruments and the right uh, knowledge, you can actually look back and see what uh, and people kind of find that hard to believe that you can actually tell what the temperature of the water was what range it was in in a particular time millions of years ago i think a lot of people you know go that's not true it is true it is true and there are multiple systems uh, various kinds of chemical systems which you could actually apply to get those temperature values not only just one isotope but there are I can think of at least four different other right. systems. Yeah. And the ratios between them and the different. Mm -hmm. So I want to know where you're going next. Let's talk about, uh, uh, Joey, to where you'll be heading off to on your next expedition. And uh, do you have do you have anything in the works right now or has that all been shut down? Not right now. Uh, I have already been associated with two expeditions uh, as an early career scientist. But right now, I just have to figure like uh, you know complete all the projects that i'm working on and uh, yeah right now i don't have any more expeditions to go to in the next one okay. year or two and yeah. a couple of weird questions but what is the uh, what is the conference for your profession your group of scientists what's it called when you all get together and uh, what's yeah do you do you guys have a conference yeah. i hope yes. so we, it's the american we geophysical to... and i want to go yeah i want to go yes Yes, so there are multiple conferences, but um, the two uh, conferences which I regularly attend are uh, American Geophysical Union, AGU. Okay. Yeah. It, it's going to happen in December and I'll be attending. Um, and then um, there is another called Geological Society of America's meeting, annual meeting. There is one more called Goldschmidt's conference, and there's the European Geophysical Union as well. Right. So, uh, but in America, I guess AGU and GSA, the ones I talked about the first, uh, those two are the most commonly attended. I'll tell you, get the word out. Yeah, where Let's is it? Let's spread this thing out. We would love to come. We'll, Let's we'll, see. we'll podcast from the, the, the AGU conference. The AGU. That, that would be amazing. <laughs> Well, we do love going to conferences and talking to lots of smart people, and they're all together. So it's always been really fun. Um, so, so, and and if people want to follow your work or are more interested in the topic, um, is there a place that you would recommend people can Google up and learn more about your work or the work of other scientists that work in paleo-oceanography and paleoclimatology? Um, so I do have my uh, own personal website. Uh, which is also in my LinkedIn account, um, the website link. And uh, if people want, so I do have a Google Scholar, but that's okay. more an academic thing. Um, however, people can follow Twitter accounts of International Ocean Discovery Program, uh, the JIDES Resolution, and uh, different other um, uh, these kind of accounts, Twitter accounts. They have they 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 do, um, you know, like post these cool science news, and overall, uh, it can be interesting. Well, Juita, we can't thank you enough for taking us into this very, very interesting world that you uh, work in. Uh, I always like uh, these. I consider these all very specific subcultures of language, and and I I like visiting these areas, even though we might sound a little foolish trying to jump into no. this conversation. No, but I really. I really thank you both for um, like having me here in the show and also I really appreciate the effort of uh, making this science more accessible to people which as I said like it's very important to me as well. Increasing accessibility in these kind of sciences is really important right now. Well we couldn't be happy to have you on and I'd love it if there's uh, new discoveries in your area to reach out to us. We'd always like to I do it we sure. can do a catch up but ladies and gentlemen it is dr joita butucharia 
She is at the University of Oklahoma College of Earth and Energy. She is a paleo-oceanographer and a paleoclimatologist and trying to figure out what's going to happen next in the world by looking what happened years, millions of years ago. It's a fascinating profession and a great career. Thank you so much for the work you're doing. And thanks for Thank being on the, on the show. Thank you. On the road at Mount Soho, far around the countryside. Birds on New Year's will get in a while, so I'm heading for the windward side. In all of the dreams, sometimes it just seemed that I'm just along for the ride. Some do cry because they're frightened. Some